In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I am aware of the fact that my sermons have a certain reputation to delve into what some might call politics. And for what it's worth, my intent every week is to be checking myself and be sure that um, whatever the spirit of the age is doesn't get in the way of my interpretation of the text, that what I'm preaching is truly what the Bible tells us. And then sometimes you look at your gospel passage for the week and read Jesus saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So this morning you're just going to get what you're going to get. But it may not be what you think you're going to get. So before I lose you, let's jump right into the text. The gospel readings for the last two weeks have had Jesus prodding the Pharisees with parables about how God is rejecting them because they're rejecting him, God's Messiah. There's the laborers in the vineyard who kill the son of the master and the people invited to a wedding feast who reject the invitation. The Pharisees got the message, and so enough is enough. And so this week we hear that the Herodians and the Pharisees both got together to trap Jesus. Now they hated each other. They had very different approaches to Jewish life under Roman rule, but Jesus was a unique problem for both of them. So they get together, and they try to trap Jesus with this unanswerable question. They start with flattery, saying, we know you don't care what anybody thinks. We know you have this independent, poignant opinion. So we'll ask you this question. Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? The trap is said this way. If Jesus affirms the tax, he's affirming submission to Rome. And he would certainly lose a lot of the supporters who were calling him the Messiah, who praised his entry on Palm Sunday. But if he rejects the tax, if he says it's not lawful, he's committing treason, and then they have reason to turn him into the authorities. Jesus flips it around on them by asking for a coin. The request puts his opponents on the defense because the mandatory tax to Caesar didn't have to be paid in Caesar's coins, in the Roman coins, which were idolatrous. They were idolatrous not because of just the image of the face on them, breaking the second commandment, barring graven images, at least as they understood it then. But it also bore this inscription that Jesus references, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus on one side, and high priest, Pontifex Maximus, on the other. This coin was a concise package of the Caesar's blasphemy, the claim to divinity. The Roman Empire stood on this claim that was in direct opposition with worship to the one true universal God. And by handling a coin, which bore the marks of the blasphemy, the Pharisees and the Herodians lost the argument before it even started. Now, we'll return to Jesus' pithy reply in a minute, but I think it would be helpful to dwell a little bit more on about what the Roman Empire demanded of its citizens. The Caesars didn't actually demand that conquered people gave up their own local religious worship for Caesar worship. Herod, the Roman puppet himself, built the temple for sacrifices. But what Rome wouldn't allow is for a local religion to ever challenge its own legitimacy or challenge the Pax Romana. You can worship whatever you want, however you want, as long as that worship doesn't defy or get in the way of Rome's rule. And architecture means something. And so that temple that Herod built had to have an eagle on the top. Pilate, zealous for ensuring Roman superiority, puts an eagle on top of the worship of Yahweh. So this center of Jewish religious life included a reminder that, in case you forgot, Caesar is Lord. Early Christians had to deal with imperial requirements to offer just a pinch of incense to the emperor, just a tiny little act of devotion, 
in it asserting that Caesar was not just to be prayed for, as the New Testament instructs, but had to be prayed to. And their refusal to ascribe to Caesar that which actually belonged to God had them persecuted and branded by the Romans as atheists. See, as far as Caesar is concerned, you can play with all of your pretend gods as much as you want, because the only thing that matters, the line in the sand, is whether or not you will worship him, the self-declared true God, or perhaps participating in one of his pre-sanctioned religions. And so Christians who believed in the one true God are atheists. Now, we might assume that in the face of this heresy, what God's people are called to do is overthrow the heretics. But Jesus doesn't take the path of the zealots. For him, it's not a choice between sedition or selling out. Instead, it's a kind of indifference, a reorienting of priorities. You can give to the Caesar his tax, but you render to God what is God's. Jesus displays the same kind of indifference for the kingdoms of the world as he stands in front of Pontius Pilate in my sort of movie version of this scene, Jesus has the sort of blasé face of a teenager, just uncaring about Pilate's, Pilate's challenge. Pilate puffs out his chest and says to Jesus, don't you understand that I have the power to kill you? And Jesus rolls his eyes in my head and says, you wouldn't have any power if it hadn't been given to you from above, from the Father, who Jesus one chapter earlier had said, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, God is in control, and while I'm not going to defy you right now, I'm certainly not going to bend the knee. It's just like what we read if we read Isaiah 45. Cyrus, this mighty king of Persia, is told by God, I'll give you all these treasures and go before you, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah says that God names Cyrus, Cyrus, you are just a pawn in God's plan. You might be the mighty king of Persia, but you are just one little piece in my plan for my people and my kingdom. In fact, every great kingdom, great empire, great republic, and great democracy has been, at best, a means to an end, or at worst, a hurdle in the way of God's kingdom. So whatever, pay your taxes, but don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. Don't bend the knee and snivel up to any earthly nation when you are a citizen of heaven, of the kingdom that is to come and is coming and whose king is already seated on the throne. And that's my fear that, if you'll allow a brief Lord of the Rings reference, we've been bending over backwards to curry favor and status in Denethor's court, a mere steward, as if there isn't a rightful king of Gondor. We've been chasing after mere stewards of the world while there is a true king who sits on the throne. Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon scathingly critique this behavior of ours in a book called Resident Aliens back in the 80s. I read it this summer, and the number of times I was knocked on my own back by this book is too many to count. And so the, the things that were highlighted are, would be a sermon in and of themselves. But this quote I thought would be really helpful for us this morning. Uh, I should note they're writing to mainly uh, left-leaning mainline churches. And they say this, People often complain that the political agenda of conservative Christians looks suspiciously like the political agenda of conservative secularists, the Republican Party on its knees. And it seems inconceivable that an agency of any mainline Protestant denomination should espouse some social position unlike that of the most liberal Democrats. The church is the dull exponent of conventional secular political ideas with a vaguely religious tint. Political theologies, whether of the left or the right, want to maintain Christendom, which they use as a pejorative, wherein the church justifies itself as a helpful 
if sometimes complaining, prop of the state. Now here in the United States, we face the demands of our own Caesars. Now true, we have the gift of a democracy where we get to pick which Caesar it is that we want to appeal to, whose policies we will allow to shape our own theology. But if your first instinct is to point the finger at the other party for kowtowing to the empire, you need to do some hard work and look in your own eye to remove that plank. If you think this sermon is about a current administration, maybe think about how you felt the prior eight years. And for this, we have to repent. For the ways in which we have lived under the wisdom of a separation of church and state where the church can thrive and yet consistently try to become the appealing lapdogs of the Caesars of our own age, we must repent because that project, the one where we try to gussy ourselves up so that the politicians will like us and give us a seat at the table, that project's off the rails from the start. And it has, has historically led to ruin for church and state alike. The Roman emperors, after Christianity became no longer outlawed but encouraged, they were assured by the church that as long as God was honored, the Roman Empire was secure. Until it wasn't, and it fell, and it felt like the end of the world. But it wasn't, and God's kingdom continued. And then we have the Holy Roman Empire, which is humorously neither holy nor Roman nor empire. And then we have any number of Christian nations, quote-unquote, that come afterwards, any number of nations who assume that they are God's new people, their new Jerusalem. Whether that's London or Washington, the West is full of these people. But a close comparison of the teachings of Jesus with the history of those efforts, from colonialism to imperialism to manifest destiny, will show that there's a lot of difference between God's kingdom and the people who have claimed to be the embodiment of God's kingdom, church and state, how they've actually acted. The good news is this. The gospel is nonpartisan, but it is absolutely political, by which we mean having to do with the exercise of power. We claim that Jesus is Lord, that the Caesars howl and bluster and demand that we offer the pinch of incense in exchange for power or legitimacy or popularity. But all in the background, the God who made all things is still king. And we must not be the pawns of powerful men and women, but prophets who speak truth to their power like John the Baptist who's beheaded for it, or Jesus who's crucified for it, or the apostles or the church afterwards. Not to overthrow and shuffle the boundaries of earthly kingdoms, but to call the kingdoms out on their false claims of ultimate authority. James Smith had this brilliant article that came out this last week about saying Merry Christmas and what that means, and he defined the message of Christmas very clearly. Leaders of the world, you are fired. Clean your desk out by the end of the age. This allows us not to be less but more political, properly political, ascribing power and glory to the God to whom it properly belongs. The church's assertion that our Lord Jesus Christ is son of the divine God and high priest isn't just repurposing what was said of the Caesars. We're not adopting the world's policies and trying to make them work in our churches. That's a direct attack on the Caesars' claim to ultimate authority. And we're called to do the same. We're called to speak to individuals, nations, anyone that would claim they are the ultimate authority, they are the great hope for the world, and we must rally behind them and we say, eh, you'll be gone one day and God's kingdom will continue. And so we invest in the kingdom of God. We invest in the church as the sign of that kingdom, the outpost and the signpost of new creation. We're not anarchists trying to destroy the nations because we're happy to give Caesar what is his. The people of Israel, when they lived in, ex in exile in Babylon, were told, 
contribute to the welfare of that society because that's where you live. And so we want to continue to have our neighbors have good lives and our distant neighbors to have good lives. We care about people and we care about, as Canadians call it, good government, which may not be actually present in Canada at any point in time. But we must be careful never to ascribe to anyone or anything else our worship or our hope. If you think in response to any particular crisis that the answer is we must gather together and unite ourselves as Americans, you might as well be the church in 405 and say the barbarians are on our doorstep. We have to gather together as Romans and recognize our similarities. It won't do you any good. The kingdoms will rise and fall. The thing we need to unite around is the cross of Jesus Christ. We cast all of our hope on him, on Christ, who is content to be killed by Caesar because he is the one true Lord, the victor, the high priest, the son of the living God, worthy of all praise and honor and glory, who is our only king, whose gentle rule is the only one to which which we give any true allegiance. And that is the political good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.